We're turning to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. If you do not have a copy of the Bible, there should be a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And um, Joshua chapter 2 is found on page 178 in that blue Bible. 178, Joshua chapter 2. <coughs> and friends, I'm still dealing with this cold, so like I said, lots of yucky sounds during the sermon, uh, but I think we'll be okay this morning. Thank you, Josiah. You're a gentleman and a scholar. I appreciate you. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you were asked to write a book about Jesus, how would you start the story? That's a pretty big job, isn't it? Writing a book about Jesus. How would you start it? Well, it's Christmas season, so we'd probably start with the story of Gabriel announcing Jesus' birth, telling the Virgin Mary that he would come into the world. And that's how Luke starts his story about Jesus. Or maybe you're more of an action-oriented individual. I love action-oriented people. You just want to get right into the action. So you're going to get miracles going. You're going to have the teachings of Jesus. And that conflict with the Pharisees, that's going to start escalating right away. Well, that's how Mark starts his gospel. Mark's favorite word in his gospel, do you know what it is? Immediately immediately Jesus went and. Maybe you're more of the contemplative type, philosophical. So you would want to talk about the divine nature of Jesus, his eternal origins and how he is God. (coughs) And you would also want to express the reasons as to why God the Father sent him into the world. And I'm sure you've guessed it. That's how who John starts his story. But i got to tell you, I don't think many of us would talk about a list of 2,000-year-old dead people in succession. I just don't believe that would be the way that we'd start the story. I don't think that we're inclined to think in those sorts of terms, dead relatives in succession. But for some reason, Matthew, the writer of the first gospel, he starts his story that way. He tells us about the lineage of Jesus. Now, talking about family, (coughs) that can be a little messy and it can be hard to keep accurate. I mean, in our own American context, we've been called the melting pot and there's this industry out there today where people send in their DNA to find out their ancestral history, right? Um, We want to know what our makeup is. I think Chemo did one of these and he found out that he's part Viking, which I thought was pretty cool. (coughs) And let's be honest, you know, we're interested in those things, Americans, the melting pot, but there's also aspects of the family line that gets a little more messy. Maybe you don't want to know everybody that's in your family tree. Maybe it'd be better to be a little more ignorant. But Matthew opens up the books. He tells us about Jesus' genealogy. It's not an exhaustive genealogy. It's structured. It's something like a highlight clip. He gives us 14 generations from Abraham to David and then 14 from David to Jesus. And one feature that makes this genealogy of Matthew very interesting is that he includes five women in the line. Five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, 
Bathsheba. And then we learn about Mary in his gospel. Now, you might not think of that as anything outside of the normal. Why not include women in the line? But in Matthew's cultural context, that just wasn't done. You just didn't write genealogies from that perspective. It was always written from the perspective of the fathers. So why does he do this? Well, for one thing, I think John MacArthur notes a very important reason. He says, one of the unique features of the Bible is the way it exalts women. Far from ever demeaning or belittling women, Scripture often seems to go out of the way to pay homage to them, to ennoble them, their role in society and family, to acknowledge the importance of their influence and to exalt the virtue of women who are particularly godly examples. I'm sorry for the slide mess up there. I'm not sure what's going on there, um, but we'll just keep going on. But another reason, and the big reason that Matthew does this in his genealogy is that Jesus is the Savior of all of humanity. Not just men, but women. Not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but all people. And this is one of the many lessons that we learn from the mothers of Jesus. And while I wish we had time to cover all of them, we're going to skip over Tamar, me and Harry both said, you know, we just feel led by the Holy Spirit to skip over that story. And uh, we're going to pick up our story this week with Rahab. So let's ask the question, who is Rahab? Now there are some descriptors that tend to overwhelm a person's identity. When you refer to them in that way, that's about all you can think of with that person. You know, when someone is, for example, a dentist... That doesn't overwhelm their identity. You say, that's great, they're a dentist, but they're probably a mother or a father. They were probably a grandson, a good citizen. However, when I refer to someone being a drug lord, well, now you're not thinking about much else, are you? You don't really care if they have kids. You don't ask the question, do they go to church on Sunday? They're a drug lord. You don't need to know anymore. Well, Joshua 2.1 opens with a descriptor of Rahab that overwhelms the rest of her identity. She is called Rahab the prostitute. Joshua 6.25, Rahab the prostitute. Then when she's referred to in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.31, Rahab the prostitute. Then we make our way into James 2.25, Rahab the prostitute. Enough said. We can try to sugarcoat it. Uh, Many have tried to do that. It doesn't sound that good, does it? God worked with a prostitute. (coughs) In the Victorian era, they actually tried to gloss over this and change the title of Rahab in some way. Oh, they didn't mean prostitute. They meant hostess. She's not one of those kind of people. She's respectable. Well, Charles Spurgeon responded to this. This woman was no mere hostess, but a real harlot. He had a good way of saying things, didn't he? I am persuaded that nothing but a spirit of distaste for free grace would ever have led any commentator to deny her sin. So there's no nice way to say it. She welcomed men into her home. She provided them the services that they required. 
She was employed in what has been called the world's oldest profession. Money, food, commodities, in exchange for sex. What God had originally designed and created and intended to be uh, taking place in the context of a marriage and love for the purpose of children has been downgraded to a mere exchange of goods. Rahab, the prostitute. Well, how did she get into this lifestyle? We don't know. We don't know a lot about her story. We just get a little snippet of her story. It could be like Fantine from Les Miserables where there was just a a series of unfortunate events that had occurred in her life and left her destitute and in need to do this. Or it could have just been simple economics. She tried a more respectable job, career pathway, if you will, but this one just paid better. Yes, Rahab was a prostitute. But one of the amazing things that we see in God's word is that God doesn't allow one descriptor to overwhelm a person's identity. You see, Rahab is not just a prostitute in the Bible. She is also a mother, a mother in the line of Jesus. Matthew 1.5 <coughs> And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. As a child, you learned some of your best lessons from your mother, didn't you? My mother taught me many lessons. Don't pick your nose. Tuck in your shirt. Say please and thank you. Are you really going to go out of the house looking like that? But there was also bigger lessons. You will talk to your father with respect. You will conduct yourself in the world with integrity. The woman that you're going to marry, you will treat like a princess. If you want to trust God with your life, then you must spend time with him and pray and pursue him. You see, Rahab is a mother too, and she has lessons to teach us as well. And in the New Testament, the overwhelming consensus is that Rahab has lessons to teach us about faith. She is a model of faith. Well, how is she a model of faith? Well, we find that out as we go into Joshua chapter 2 and we see Rahab in action. <coughs> now, let's get a little context for this story. Joshua 2 opens with Joshua setting up a secret spy mission. The people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They had left Egypt and they made their way up into the promised land. Many miraculous events occurring along the way to get them to the point that they are now. They're sitting in this location called Shittim. Shittim was a place in Israel's history where they had two occurrences of disobedience to God. One occurrence was with Balaam, the prophet who had enticed the people of Israel with Moabite women, and uh, they fell into idolatry. The second time was when Moses had sent the 12 spies into the land, and they returned, and 10 of them gave a bad report. Israel chose not to go into the promised land, leading to those 40 years of wandering. So they're here at Shittim a third time, and you know how the saying goes, third time's a charm, right? So Verse 1 begins, 
And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Jericho was a major city that stood directly in Joshua's pathway. You can see there, there was a two-wall system in this city. It would be a formidable place to uh, overcome for the people of Israel. But it was also strategic and important in the sense that when you took over Jericho, you would be able to enter the land and have two pathways into the territories. If you were to head south, you'd go towards Jerusalem. If you were to head north, you would go towards Ai and on towards Bethel. So when these spies come into the city, um, they, they, they get this sense that there's a terror upon the city. And uh, if you were in Jericho, you'd probably be scared too. Seven miles away, there is a horde of over a million Jews waiting to come and conquest the land. And it is probably for this reason that the city's on high alert. So these spies, they're not very successful at what they do. They come into the city and they're found out almost immediately. They make their way to Rahab's house. She was in one of those types of places where, yes, she had her own personal trade, but she was also an in-service probably to outsiders that would come into the city, the vagabond types, uh, those with less than honorable intentions. So we learn what happens next in verses 2 through 7. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at night, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flak and had laid in, uh, that she had laid in order uh, on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Ask yourself this question. Why did Rahab do it? And just think about that for a minute. You can now add traitor to the list of unflattering titles, prostitute, traitor. Why would she sell out her entire city for two men who have come in to spy it out with the intent of destroying it? Why would she place herself in that kind of danger? And if she, what would happen to her if she's caught in this lie? And let's just be honest. Rahab's lying to these guys right now. She is decisive She's calculating. She knows how to tell the best sort of lie. There's a little kernel of the truth in there, isn't it? Yes, the men came to me, but now they've gone on. You should go pursue them. It's actually kind of funny throughout church history. There's been a back and forth debate over whether or not Rahab should have lied in this moment. I mean, can you believe it? 
Uh, Some say her actions, well, they were permissible because of the motivation behind it. Others say there is never time you should lie. God is truth. You should not do that. I think the lesson that we learn about hermeneutics, which is the study of the Bible, is this, just because the Bible reports actions doesn't mean we need to reduplicate them, right? Whatever one concludes about Rahab's methodology, there can be no doubt that the Bible only says one thing about her actions. They came from faith. When you look at James chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, you see this. I'm going to be reading to you from the late Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. He says, Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. Isn't that interesting that Rahab is a model of faith because she does or she did what faith does. We don't get any words from her. We don't understand what she understands at this point. We'll find that out in verses 8 through 13 as we move forward. But for the moment, we only have Rahab's actions to watch, and the conclusion is that Rahab hit the spies because she believed in their God. Wow. That's what faith does. Somewhere along the way, Rahab had received enough information about God and she underwent a, a, a quiet transformation in her heart. She heard of him. She believed the stories. She knew she had to do something about it. So when the, the spies came into her house, she willingly betrayed her own city because she was aligning herself with God's cause instead of the cause of her city. Friends, do you know that the moment that you turned to Jesus when you placed your faith in him, if you have done that, that in that moment, you turned traitor just like Rahab did. You turned traitor. When you said yes to Jesus, you were also saying yes to the entire value system of the living, eternal God. And in the same regard, when you said yes to Jesus, you were saying no to anything that was antithetical to God's value system. You can think of that as an act of treason. You are choosing a higher 
authority, even over your allegiance from wherever you're from, whether you're born in America or Brazil or France or England or Togo or wherever you're from, and you're saying no to all the antithetical things that are pervasive in those cultures, like things that we hear today, like the more you have, the better, or all roads lead to heaven, or what is true for you is not true for me, or if it feels good, do it. You said no to those things. And yes, to the God of truth, most fundamentally, you chose God and his ways over the world. So what if you are not willing to engage in the act of treason? What if you want to give up the spies? Well, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Rahab is an amazing woman of faith. She chose not to love the world. It's amazing when you think about it. What did she really know about Israel's God? Did she see any of the things that the people of Israel saw? No. She was sitting in the walled-up city of Jericho. She had heard some stories. Uh, She probably didn't even know overwhelmingly what he does and what he's like. She had little information, little revelation of God, and yet she chose to believe. Friends, that is faith. I love that story in John chapter 20 when Thomas is confronted with the resurrection and he is struggling with doubt. One of the reasons I love that story is because it's real, right? People struggle with doubt. And he's struggling with doubt so much so that he says this to the other disciples, unless I see in his hands the mark of nails and I place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Tell us what you really think, Thomas. But Jesus in his kindness appears to him and he deals gently with his doubts and Thomas comes to a a place of belief. But listen to Jesus' gentle rebuke as he describes what is a stronger kind of faith. He says this, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Rahab is one of those blessed ones. She turned traitor because her faith was staggering. And this is why she is a model for us all. But I want you to hear the substance of her faith. That's really important when you consider faith. You can believe in anything, but the substance of what you believe is really what matters. Listen to her words in verse 8 and onward. (coughs) The text says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Wow. So the substance of this faith, let's just look at what she's saying about God. The first thing she's saying is God is powerful. Essentially, God's superior. She's heard about the parting of the Red Sea. She's heard about the military victories with the Amorites. She starts doing the math, right? If God can do those things, then we are no match for him. And I've never seen one of my gods do anything like this. I mean, just think about it. Her faith is basic and it's rational. It only makes sense that you would be overwhelmed by a Red Sea crossing. I mean, think about the colossal force that it would take to part those waters. It's interesting when you you get into the Red Sea crossing, approximately 1.5 million Jews crossed. It could be in excess of that. Now, when you read the passage, you get the sense that this happened in under 24 hours. That's a lot of people to move and get across the Red Sea. And, uh, you know, that scene that you have there of my boy, Charlton Heston, Probably not wide enough. It's likely that when God moved the waters of the Red Sea that there was miles between the two waters and that Israel walked over in a single throng across the water. I mean, we are talking about a force and magnitude of strength here that no one had ever seen before and now this was coming to Jericho. You get why that would make you a lot fearful. Rahab says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now why would she be afraid? Well, I believe that Rahab understood that God was coming to Jericho as an act of judgment. And she knew that she was complicit in the sins of her society. She was living in a society that had done reprehensible things against God's moral law. Just think about this. They burned their own children in worship. They committed public public sexual immoral acts in worship. And they did all kinds of regular acts of violence against innocence as a culture. It was accepted. It was broadly understood that that was okay. And she's also contributing to the moral mess as a prostitute. You see, this is a bigger problem than her sense of shame. This is a bigger problem than just, I need some more positive thinking in my world to make me feel better about myself. No, her biggest problem was this. She was guilty in the eyes of the God who had parted the Red Sea, and now he's coming to Jericho, and everybody in Jericho is guilty before him. Friends, God wasn't wiping out that city because Israel needed a place to stay. He was sending Israel in as an instrument of his wrath to execute swift justice for hundreds and hundreds 
and hundreds of years of evil perpetrated by this people. You see, the God that Rahab and Jericho feared is the same God that we should fear, the same God throughout all the Bible. He is the God who is to be feared. Michael Horton says, nobody today seems to think that God is dangerous, and that is itself a dangerous oversight. He is dangerous. He parted the Red Sea. He caused the sun to stop in the sky for a 24-hour period. Friends, to cause the sun to stop in the sky is probably the biggest miracle that I've ever heard of. He opened up the earth and it swallowed people. What happens when you start taming God? You you make him into a God that is not majestic and holy and all-powerful and worthy to be feared. You make him into a God that you kind of like, but you also yawn at. I think of the words of C.S. Lewis. He was talking about how people had made this God uh, that was a benevolent old grandfather with the long white beard. You know, the type of grandfatherly figure that's not really interested in what you're doing as long as a good time's being had by all. Because who wants a God that threatens, a God who judges, a God who pours out wrath? Why not fashion a God in our taste, a friendly God who can we can pet and leash and export for popular appeal. But I got to tell you, yawn. I'm not interested in that God. I want the God of the Bible that Psalm 111.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. That's the kind of God I want to worship. I want to worship a God who's in control, who's all-powerful, who's omnipotent. Rahab understands this. She says in verse 11, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a profound statement of God's sovereignty from a woman who was a former polytheist. Your God is God. He rules over everything. There is none but him. You get it? You can't domesticate him. He created everything. He's in charge. He makes the rules. If his disposition towards us is one of grace and mercy, then we will be okay. But if it is a disposition of judgment and wrath, well, then we will be ruined like the city of Jericho was ruined. So the real question is, is what is God's disposition towards us? When you think about it, Rahab had two choices in this moment. One, she could have feared God and lived with the dread that everyone else in Jericho was living with, but determined to keep doing what she was doing. Forget about it. I'll live with the consequences. Maybe I'll just continue to go about what I'm doing. The other, though, the other choice was that she could fear God and cast herself entirely at his mercy, and that's what she does. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. 
So she casts herself at the mercy of God. How does God respond? Well, let's fast forward the story a little bit. She cuts a deal with the spies. Uh, she will save them from the city if in turn they will save her from the coming destruction. There's three stipulations made. She can tell no one about them. She must place a scarlet cord in the window. Uh, her family must be with her in the room or else there are no guarantees. So after the spies leave, Rahab immediately puts to action what they had said. She takes that scarlet cord, she ties it outside of the window. Sometime later, Joshua comes back with all the people of Israel. Only oddly enough, they don't attack initially. They stand outside of that city and they walk around it one time and repeat that for six days, blowing a horn at the end of it. Then on the seventh day, we read that the city um, is marched around seven times. They blow a horn. There's a great shout, and suddenly, boom! <laughs> that city wall falls down like a house of cards, all except for one portion of it, the place where Rahab is staying. Joshua kept the promise that the spies made with her, Joshua 6.25. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers who Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. You continue in the story and we never read about Rahab again in the Old Testament. We come to learn through the New Testament that she married Salmon, and we're not even quite sure who Salmon is. Was he one of the spies? We don't know. We only know that he's a, a man in this long line of men who would eventually bring the Savior in the world. And uh, Rahab, of course, is one of the mothers. So as we consider this story of Joshua 2, the life of Rahab, Yes, we learned a lot about faith, but we also learned something about God's grace. You know, it's interesting when we tend to think about Rahab in Christian circles, people say things like this, isn't God's grace amazing? There is grace even for people like Rahab. And when we think that thought, we have unconsciously put ourselves in a separate category from her. You get that? Rahab, me, there's a scale of grace. There's bad, badder, and worse. I'm somewhere over here. Rahab, she's way over here. But the problem is, is you are Rahab. I am Rahab. There is no scale of bad, better, and worse. There is only one standard in God's holy book. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friend, if you did a little better on the test, but you still failed, I don't really care at the end of the day. You have no bragging rights. It doesn't matter. This means that we both need grace. Without grace, we are all living on the fringes of society, living our lives, waiting for that destruction that is to come upon us unless God shows up and meets us with his grace. You know what's amazing when you think about the placement of Joshua chapter 2 in the story of Joshua? You know, really 
Joshua chapter 2 doesn't need to be there to continue the flow of the thought and the plot of the story. The spies come in, they go back to Joshua, they don't learn any information. Joshua chapter 6, God says, I'm going to take care of this, guys, you don't need to do anything. So it seems to me that the only reason that Joshua chapter 2 is in the Bible is to show us that God is willing to go to extreme lengths to save one lost sinner. I mean, just think about that for a minute. God would stall the military advance of a massive army over one lost, lone prostitute. Wow. Rahab was entirely lost. There's no reason God should stop. But he chose to send spies to her. That's grace. This is the same reason Jesus came into the world in Luke 19.10. Our Lord explained, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lost in what way? Separated from God. Utterly sinful. Hellbound unless God shows up in our world. Lost. But God is willing to halt the advance of his justice if only to reach out and pluck one sinner from that fate. Isn't that amazing? Nobody, (coughs) not only does he halt his justice, but the Bible tells us that God takes the penalty on himself. He sends his one and only son into the world to bear the shame of our sinfulness, our life of prostitution. That's grace. So then if we are Rahab, if we have sinned great sins against God, if we are in need of God's mercy, then what do we do about it? Well, we do the same thing that she did. By faith, we throw ourselves at the mercy of God. By faith, we believe that Jesus died in our place. By faith, we believe that God raised him from the dead, that in believing the gospel message, God says, you will be saved. That's grace. It's as if you are receiving a present at Christmas from a family member that's free. Free to you, but remember, not to God. It cost him his son. It cost him that which was closest to his heart. Author Tim Keller notes that at Christmas time, there are certain gifts that would be hard to receive. Uh, Gifts that would require us to Engage in a little humility if we were to get them. Can you imagine if you were sitting around the Christmas tree with a couple of friends and one of your friends eagerly hands you a gift, you open up the gift, and it is a dieting book? How would you feel about that? And then the next friend hands you a gift with a big warm smile on their face, and the title of that book is Overcoming Selfishness. Huh. You know, if you look across the room and say thank you to your friends, you are acknowledging, I got a weight problem and I'm a little bit obnoxious. Some gifts are just hard to receive because if I take it, I have to admit that I'm flawed, I'm weak, and that I need help. Maybe you've had a time where you're in a financial need and you reached out to a friend and helped you out a little bit. It took humility to do that. 
had to swallow a little pride. I'll tell you, friends, to accept the gift of Jesus Christ, that requires us to swallow the most amount of pride that any other gift that we could receive would require us to do. I mean, just think about it. Christmas means that you're so lost, you're so utterly unable to save yourself that nothing but the death of the Son of God himself could save you. That means that you are not somebody that can pull yourself together. You can't do a little more good to be right with God. That means that you are Rahab, So the only way to receive this gift is to do what Rahab did. By faith, you throw yourself at the mercy of God. Can I ask you to bow your heads for a moment?